Harmless fun? Let's see what happens next. TGIF, it's Manson Mitchell with Gary Manson's Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to jumpstart your weekend. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Friday. Hope it's the start of a good, big, wonderful weekend for you this Memorial Day weekend. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. And together, Mance and Mitchell, at your service, in your ears, ably assisted, as always, of a Friday by bad boy Benny Mathers at the board. Benny, how are you today? In full effect. <laughs> wow. I... I, this, you know, I don't know where the station gets the budget for this this sort of histrionic approach to radio. As out of my own pocket. There's no budget. Oh, really? My, my dad was a public school teacher. He knows about out of his own pocket. Yep. Me. Yep. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Okay. You know, today, this is a wonderful occasion for us because we get our consciousness elevated. Remember when they used to talk about consciousness raising in the 70s? Mm -hmm. hey that man that's really good man all right love that there we go man. That's, all those, right. are, those are cool. echoes of the past as uh <laughs> snorted through a hookah i think but, <laughs> but here we are nonetheless shep siegel is back that's shepherd siegel phd mm. yes i am yes. delighted anytime we get the chance to talk to him well, and he's got a new book and we read it and we are very eager to get to him. So let me tell you a little bit about him. Shepard Siegel playfully trains his lens on politics and culture to suss out the trickster element as it has shown up, tickled society, and then just as quickly disappeared. His diverse academic background, degrees in music, career and technical education, special education, administration, and studies in anthropology, equip his scholarly pursuits. His activism grows out of visions born in the Bohemian subculture of the San Francisco Bay Area. More to be said about that. His presentations and talks have established him as a reliable and entertaining public intellectual on the subject of tricksters in politics and culture. He has a varied history as an activist, writer, musician, researcher, and prankster. He's written over 30 peer-reviewed and other journal articles, a textbook that enjoyed two editions, and the award-winning disruptive play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, which we've already read and talked to him about. And uh, born in Chicago, Siegel has lived the longest in the Bay Area and Seattle, where he now resides. The book I'm holding in my hand, second book is called tricking power into performing acts of love how tricksters through history have changed the world and we are thrilled once more to say hello to <clears throat> dr siegel shepherd siegel glad to have you with us today well good day to you and um, uh, it's great to be back um you know if i could just get us gary you, you got us off to the perfect start when you talked about consciousness raising because even the book profiles tell stories because we like stories and it profiles characters, whether it's Mae West or Lord Buckley or whatever, because that helps us get a handle on it. But in point of fact, my goal really is to talk to folks about consciousness 
and how consciousness permeates our society. So if you look at archetypes, um, what we see in this country right now is that we are swimming in the waters of the warrior archetype. And because we're swimming in those waters, we can't even see it. But we've adopted an approach that wants to solve problems through fighting and conflict. And that's a consciousness we live in, and it's around us so much, we don't even notice it sometimes, which scares me. And that's the consciousness I want to change. I don't want people to find a trickster character that they fall in love with and worship and follow as a leader. I want our whole society to have a little bit more trickster consciousness so we can have more fun and so we can look for other ways of getting beyond power without fighting power with power, without going to the warrior uh, mode. So thanks for getting us deep into it without even starting. <laughs> <laughs> I have a tendency to do that inadvertently. Right, right. Way right, to right. go. You know, um, Gary and I, in preparing for today's show, we just, we threw up our hands and said, oh my God, there is just so much to cover and so many places we can go. We were trying to figure out how to make this um, uh, easy to digest for our listeners. And I, and I said to Gary, this is where I'd actually like to start at the simplest possible place. I want you to talk a little bit, just briefly, mm -hmm. about types of play, original play, cultural play, disruptive play, just in their essence, what they are, because that will help us launch into the rest of the places we want to go. Uh, I think that is a great place to start, Suzanne. And so, the, you know, the, the scholars of play who study it and publish their journals and their articles and do research and usually are working about with little kids um, in playfulness, though not necessarily, they've come up with 308 different forms of play. I'd like to go through each of them now. No, sure. that's a joke. <laughs> because Pick three. I just, right, I just concern myself with three, and you name them, and, and it's a great place to start. So that first is original play, and original play is kind of something that all animals do, and, and that humans do, but usually by the age of four and five, we stop doing it. But that state of play, if you will, means that you're, you, you don't play in order to win. It's not a game. Little games emerge, but the games dissolve as soon as they emerge. So it can be described as something physical, like two little kids get on the ground and they start wrestling, and they enter this state where there's no clutching, there's no pinching, there's no hitting, there's, it's nothing sexual about it. There's no tickling even, but they wrestle around, a game emerges, and then it dissolves. In a nutshell, you play in order to keep on playing, and you play strictly for fun. Then you have cultural play, and cultural play is what our society is engaged in very much, and there's nothing wrong with it. You need cultural play. Cultural play is when you have games that have winners and losers. So that can be as simple as little games we play as little kids. It can be the cultural play of competition in the marketplace. 
um, or it can be professional sports, or in its very worst form, it can be war, where you play in order to have victory, you play in order to defeat your, your adversary. Once again, within limits, cultural play is great. Uh, I would contend that when it escalates into the state of war, uh, is not so great. So I'm not opposed to cultural play, but I do feel that is part of my soapbox that cultural play has gotten out of hand in our society. Now, what's that third form, disruptive play? The algebra here is quite simple. Disruptive play is when you take original play and you introduce it into the arenas of cultural play. It's usually not appreciated, but it deflates the assumed dignity of cultural play. So a somewhat banal example, but one that it makes it helps us all grasp it is some of you may be old enough to remember there was this brief period of this thing called streaking where some guy would take his clothes off and he would run naked onto the field when an NFL game was being played. Okay, so you've got the cultural play, the NFL game, very serious cultural play, very serious competition, and you've got some joker running naked going, wee, look at me, and running across the field. That's uh, somewhat banal, but, it's a di but it is disruptive play. Another one would be when during the Vietnam War, um, there were a bunch of demonstrators, um, and Abby Hoffman was involved in it, and they levitated the Pentagon 300 feet off the ground to exercise its demons. Um, so the Pentagon is really the center of cultural play in its most massive form because the greatest military in the history of the world is deployed from the Pentagon. And uh, at this time, there was a Vietnam War going on, and the folks opposed to the war did something very silly to try to deflate the dignity of this cultural uh, play and this Vietnam War that had really gotten out of hand by exorcising, performing an exorcism rite, and exorcising the demons. So that's one more example. And let me give a final example of disruptive play, because in the book, you'll read a bunch about the Marx Brothers. And Groucho Marx in particular, but all the Marx Brothers, really, that's what they did. They went into the realms of the elite, the realms of people who saw themselves as very dignified, and through slapstick and humor, they would pull the rug out from under them. They would, they, would, they would tell puns and jokes that might be insulting and perform slapstick that um, is really a form of disruptive play. Introducing frolic, playing just to keep on playing and make people laugh instead of uh, cultural play where you play to, play to win. Well, thank you for that little bit of a synopsis. When I was thinking about original play, you know, it's fun to think about little uh, little lion cubs or little bear cubs rolling around. But mm -hmm. for me personally, it was using my parents' bed as a trampoline <laughs> when I was a toddler <laughs> and jumping up and down in the bedroom until, 
you know, my mother would yell, stop that. Somebody's going to get hurt. And, and my <laughs> sister and I would jump together. Sometimes we'd alternate. Sometimes we'd jump at the same time. There were no rules to how we were jumping on the bed. We were just having fun jumping on the bed and, you know, seeing how much fun we could have. And then that was it. We no more monkeys hurt. jumping on the bed. <laughs> that's, I think that's great. I that's a that. really, really great example. I, I used to do that. I broke a bed once jumping. On oh, we did too. We, we did. We did. We broke the slats. <laughs> oh. Scary. And so I just I, <laughs> I I feel like I'm looking at it tributaries of conversation. Yes, I want are. to wade out into all of them at once, but I can't do that. Shep, one of the things now you mentioned the Marx Brothers. I just ordered a collection of their movies. As a matter of fact, it may have shown up today, <clears throat> and I look forward to watching them. You inspired me to go on eBay and make that purchase. Oh, way to go! You, you did. In A Night at the Opera, about which so much could be said, right? there, as far as I'm concerned, you know, box office-wise and creatively, I, I congratulate the producer of that movie. That's just... Is that uh, Irving Thalberg? Irving J. Thalberg, <laughs> who at one time was solely responsible okay. at the peak of their career of the Marx Brothers movies. And right. this is while he had numerous other projects going on simultaneously. I don't right. know how he kept his sanity. And, and don't even get me started on the writers who would come up with the script and it became virtually useless once the Marx Brothers got a hold of it. Right, so, right, right. But in A Night at the Opera, one of the little mentioned scenes and it actually recurred in the movie i thought it was hilarious even though people don't make a very big deal out of it you would have groucho and chico mm -hmm. uh, going over the contract there was this lengthy contract written up by the lawyers naturally all this paperwork and they're going through it just ripping out one page after another of this contract because right. no that doesn't work we don't need that it, it was just like thumbing their nose at proper society, a litigious society, even back then, and all of the bureaucracy and red tape that attends our existence as Americans. They were kind of just throwing it in the face of the establishment. Right. That is what they did. And, you know, I'm, I, 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 I'm glad we're, we're sticking on them a little bit. And I, I want to make, make the connection because um, we started out with these definitions of play. And so people might be wondering, well, what does that have to do with the trickster? And my premise is that the grown-up who has retained the ability to be playful as they were as a young child, in other words, they remember original play, that grown-up is going to engage, con consciously or unconsciously, with the trickster archetype. Because little babies and animals just want to have fun, and... and um, Ms. Mitchell jumping on the uh, mattress just wants to have fun. And according to St. Cindy Lauper, girls just want to have fun. And, and so do tricksters. They just want to have fun. Now, to, to bring it right to current events, and there is this fascinating article by Adam Gopnik. He writes for The New Yorker. But it's not in the print edition, it's online. And he compares Vladimir Zelensky in Ukraine to the Marx Brothers. Really? And he does a fantastic job 
because before, as we all know by now, before Zelensky became the real president of Ukraine, he was the fake president of Ukraine in a comedy series. Um, and he won his election by, and he and his opponent are now close friends because they have a common enemy, as we all know. But he won that election by being Groucho by making fun of the guy he was competing with for the presidency of the Ukraine. And if I could, <laughs> if I could paste Gopnik's article into my book, I would. So <laughs> I'll send you the link because it's just the way he connects with a mark, you know, the way Groucho in particular would trick power into being silly. Just like you said. Go ahead. I, I'm not sure I wanted right. to go where I was thinking about well, going. Let me I just, I didn't, this is what you bring Chef Siegel on. This is what you get. You yeah, to, your, your your plans just go kaput. I'm so sorry. I don't want to go dark at 19 right. minutes. And we're talking about the Marx Brothers and we all start acting like Harpo. Yeah, right. You need to just give me yes or no questions. I think you'll be able to stick to your plan. <laughs> Oh my goodness. Uh, let me tell you, you what touched on, on streaking. Oh yeah. When it comes to streaking. Now I would like to talk about the Oscars. There was a time, remember David Niven was presenting an award when yes. the streaker ran across David Niven, never short of a quip said it, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he found it remarkable that somebody would go to such lengths to advertise their shortcomings. So everybody had a big... <laughs> what a big great run. comeback! <laughs> David Niven said that. So there was a streaker at the Oscars. Now, at this past Oscars ceremony, something happened. Right. And my reaction is as follows. What did you expect when you asked Chris Rock to show up and present anything? If he's going to be speaking, he's going to be speaking as Chris Rock. You know, anybody who is at all familiar with his comedy knows pretty much what to expect. No one right. is spared. Right. And then we had the incident. I'm curious, Chef, when Will Smith went up and slapped Chris Rock, the slap heard around the world, did you see it live? And what was your reaction in any case to that incident? Well, you know, I did see it live. Um besides the slap itself, what I remember is Chris Rock saying, ladies and gentlemen, we're seeing history in the making here. <laughs> <laughs> so he did, he did not lose a beat. Um, and, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's a little bit, I keep trying to stay in my lane, but I'm not very good at it. Um, I had seen the uh, the movie that won Best Picture, Coda, and what I wanted the headline of the Academy Awards to be that the the deaf man who won Best Supporting Actor um, and gave a very emotional speech. I cried like a baby through his whole time. He totally deserved that Academy Award. So what was upsetting to me was that this, I guess I'll call it showboating. I mean, right? I mean, it was an act of violence, um, the slap. But it it was like, 
it was like, oh, let's look at the established star who's already made millions and millions of dollars. And this guy who's a newcomer who gave an amazing performance in CODA and represented deaf people. You know, nobody had recognized a deaf actor since Marley Matlin, you know, who happens to also be in the movie. And so I'm out of my lane because I have a background in working with kids with disabilities. And, um, and that was really special to me. So that was, to, I have to be perfectly honest with you, that was my reaction that, oh, now we're, now we know what the headline's going to be. And this guy is going to get his deserved attention. Um, I'm trying to think, Gary, what I'd like to know what your reaction is. I mean, Chris, right, because I like how you started out. What do you expect? You're going to get Chris Rock. So Chris Rock is, you know, everyone's got some trickster in him. And Chris Rock is making fun, is making mocking, mocking someone. Um, you could say that, uh, I, I'm sorry, what's her name? Uh, Jada, Jada Pinkett Smith, mm -hmm. that, you know, it is a disability. So to stay on the disability thing, was he making fun of a disability? I don't know um, uh, how serious the baldness uh, issue is. I don't know enough to know. Um, that That's about all I got. You know, I just kind of swallowed it and moved on. I'll say this. Academy Awards are a form of cultural play, right? You're playing to yes, win. Right. You want to win the award. You want to defeat yep. your adversaries. And I think it's an interesting barometer of our times that the actors themselves and the movie industry are getting kind of sick and tired of the Academy Awards altogether. So this might have been another blow against the event itself um, that, hmm. you know, maybe we don't care about who wins. I've always said that I like the nominations because they're a guide to what to watch, but they picked the wrong winner so many times. I care less about the winners and more about the nominations. So maybe the cultural play aspect of the Academy Awards is going to continue to diminish. What do you think? I think that's entirely possible, especially in light of this recent incident. I also understand why someone, and he isn't the only one, but how a man like Woody Allen would repeatedly, as I understand it, decline to join the Academy. He thinks the whole thing, it's all a joke to him. It, it's bunk there. It's a popularity contest. He worked that into the movie Annie Hall. That was his essay of this award mentality. It's just not what it's about for him. When he won... When Annie Hall won Best Picture, and I believe that uh, Woody Allen won Best Director for that, but Best Picture at any rate. Right. That evening, he didn't attend the Academy ceremony. They would love to have had him there. Instead, he went down to New Orleans and played Dixieland Jazz with his friends. That's what he does every year. That's right. His statement, that too is the trickster thumbing his nose at the power structure over the very medium that he commands as an auteur. That's right. I think that's great. And, you know, we all, we want to know what, God, there's so much content and there's so little time in our lives to, you can't watch it all. So we, can we recognize excellence without um, anointing winners, Right. Because we want to know the good movies to watch, but do we have to have a winner? Can we just have, well, these are the 10 best movies and leave it at that. 
Oh, I think that's quite possible. And I know from the movies that we've seen or the television shows that we've seen, many of them have been recommended to us by people whose opinions we respect. And then if we see something that we like a lot, we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it on the radio. We'll talk about it with our friends and relatives. And so I think there is a lot to be said about word of mouth and why did you like something? Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that's a much better selling point than so many nominations or uh, so many uh, winnings. And even that was made fun of in one of our favorite shows, Schitt's Creek, where they were talking <laughs> yeah, about the, <laughs> the 12 time nominated, you know, Emmy award winner, never won, but she was nominated 12 times. <laughs> Including and- for when she played a male and female character <laughs> and she still didn't win. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But I, want, I wanted to make a, a, a one distinct point here before we leave. And, and that is, that um, you distinguish between a trickster and a person who plays tricks. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and we cannot go into all 10 attributes because right. we have so many other things to cover. I want to just tell people, get the book, Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, because you will see that there are 10 different attributes that really define the trickster person. But there is a distinction and it does have to do with power. So if you could make that point before we go to break, I'd appreciate it. Oh yeah. Thanks, Suzanne. That's, that's a great point because first of all, all of us are a mixture of all the archetypes and it's just the trickster is stronger in some people than others. I like making the analogy to star Wars. Star Wars is about the warrior and the hero and when someone's got a lot of it in them, we, they go, the force is strong with him or with her. And so I feel that same way about Trickster. So everybody's got some in them, but but some people check more of the boxes of those 10 attributes uh, than, than others. And I mean, this leads us to a discussion of politicians, of course, because eh, politicians play tricks. What can I say? And um, and that doesn't make them a trickster. Um, uh, politicians in particular, the two things that you see politicians do is one, they seek to accumulate power and they raise armies and tricksters don't do that. And number two, politicians try to avoid humiliation, um, whereas the trickster doesn't actually go looking for humiliation but a trickster enters the world realizing that some of her tricks or some of his tricks are going to backfire and they accept the risk of humiliation. So that those are a couple of the attributes where some fall down on. And if people are getting confused or this is feeling far afield, Suzanne said it best, not everyone who plays tricks is a trickster, but all tricksters do play some kinds of trick. And if you need a metaphor or an image, I the mantra that I want to offer to your listeners is Bugs Bunny. Uh, Bugs Bunny is the great American trickster. And when you get the book and you read those 10 attributes, you'll see that Bugs uh, checks all the boxes quite well. There you go. <clears throat> Let's go ahead and take a break. We're at the bottom of the hour, our one and only break. 
happy as always to talk to Shepard Siegel, PhD, and uh, he is a masterful chronicler of tricksterism and the people who are tricksters and have an impact on world civilization, believe it or not, and they do it laughing all the way, sometimes through their tears. We are Manson Mitchell. Give us a couple of minutes. We'll be right back here at the epicenter of Seattle's alternative talk environment, AM 1150. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please, get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. Staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomes Shep Siegel, who talks about tricksters and pop culture over the many decades, from the Marx Brothers to Robin Williams. On Saturday, Matt Shea, a very popular guest on any number of shows on AM 1150, takes a turn in the host chair. He lays out a landscape of his road trip adventures. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10, right here on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash 1150KKNW. Very good. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our guest this hour, Shepard Siegel, PhD, Dr. Siegel, who has written yet another really great book about tricksterism. It's called Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, subtitled How Tricksters Through History Have Changed the World. Uh, Dr. Siegel, Shep, if people would like to not only get your book, but maybe find out more about you and your work and all that, where's the best place for them to do that? Well, besides coming over to my house, um, I do have a website. Yeah, we'll give out your address here. I'd love to. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, I'm not going to give out street address at the moment. Um, But uh, the website address, I'm happy to give. Now, it's funny because people always misspell my first name. And I go, well, it's spelled like the occupation. And, um, but, you know, how do you find a good shepherd these days? And, uh, <laughs> but go to shepherdsegal.com. There's right. where you can find a good shepherd. <laughs> Will you spell it, Suzanne? S H E P 
H-E-R-D, Shep and Herd, Shep Herd Siegel. S-I-E-G-E-L. We'll spell the whole thing. Although although we've also talked to another Dr. Siegel. Oh, okay. And that could... Dr. Bernie Siegel. Oh, it does get spelled a lot of different ways. So when in doubt, the vowel is always an E. S-H-E-P-H-E-R-D-G-E-L.com. I'm glad we got that sorted out. What I want to know, because I can see Dr. Siegel here on Zoom, and I'm curious about the bullwinkle hanging off the edge of his door, which appears to me to be an act of autoerotic asphyxiation, just just to the naked eye. (laughs) Well, bullwinkle and I were, we were college roommates. Uh, We attended What's the Matter You? And um, yes, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's funny because as far as my personal history goes, I would say that Rocky and Bullwinkle gave me, along with Mad Magazine, gave me a taste for satire at a, at a very young age. Um, it was the, it was the humor I enjoyed the most, even if uh, I probably didn't get a lot of the Rocky and Bullwinkle stuff it was probably over my head, but I still really, really enjoyed them. And yeah, the satire, the satire of, of it all. I know we're going out to a Seattle audience, and um, I, I I have a launch party coming up in Belltown, but that's oh, good. It's sold. It's kind of sold out. There's a few tickets left, and you can get them through my website. The tickets are free, but you got to have a ticket to get in. It'll be at the Jewel Box Theater in uh, in Belltown in the Rendezvous. Um, really interesting little theater built by MGM about a hundred years ago so that people in Seattle would watch MGM movies. But I'll also be at third place books in Ravenna in uh, mid July, I think July 14th. I'm going to double check that for you. Excellent. Yes. Yes. We want, we want to get that information out so people can actually meet you in person, which I'm sure they would love to do and Uh, get the book, which I, I highly recommend. Uh, for taking another view of the world. And this was my takeaway uh, from it. Um, one of many, uh, so many. And that is when when we opened the show and Gary was talking about consciousness raising, it is difficult to see the forest for the trees. It is very difficult for us to get out of this warrior culture that we are in right now. We will just get our way by beating the other guy to a pulp and then you you write and say wait 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 there's another way there's a way to trick power you can do that in this other way and i i think humor can really open people's minds when you surprise people with a joke and you surprise people with humor, it's, it's like they really do get to look at things a little bit differently and uh, maybe some different answers will come to the problems that we have both personally and in our country right now if you just add a, a little humor to it. It's interesting that you say that the fool has not power, but vision. Mm-hmm. And, and I said, yes, that's right. I mean, the, just think of the, the king's uh, fool that used to be able to tell the truth to the king without being killed to do it. Right. That's yeah. right. In, like the fool in, uh, in, in King Lear, 
um, and who they call him the fool. There really is a difference, I think, between fools and jesters and clowns and tricksters. But rather than get into those fine distinctions, that actor, that character who is called the fool in King Lear actually time travels. And it's time is that um, it's that ability to time travel. That is why um, the trickster can have vision and ultimately what I want to introduce in the book is to get people talking about utopia. We have terrible problems to solve right now. We have problems with gun violence. That's on everybody's mind this week. We have, uh, we, 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 we have problems with, with war. We have problems in the environment with racism, with sexism, um, all, all kinds of problems that we have to address. But when you, but that binds us to the moment. Believe me, there's, Thousands in Ukraine who wish they could time travel right now, right? Uh, yeah. Get out of, and, and so the idea of time travel is one that separates you from the moment and allows you to kind of float above the world, to look at the past, the present, and imagine the future all at once. And believe it or not, it's this somewhat silly character, the trickster, who has that that superpower. As you read trickster mythology, they and folklore, they, they all do that. And, um, and so tricksters, that's one of the other attributes. They're liars and they're saviors. They, they perform tricks that includes a form of deception, but they do it in order to reveal a, a greater truth. And that's the beauty of it. And if we could understand that more, I think we might make some more progress. And so that, yeah, that's what I'm hoping is that we have all these problems in front of us that we have to solve, but you need a North Star. You need to be, you need to also be talking about, well, what happens when we actually do solve these problems? We make the planet more sustainable. We stop all the hate-filled isms that are holding us back. Well, we're going to create a playful world, I should hope. The play society. When it comes to play, the spirit of play, you know, there's somebody I hope that you will describe in detail with an appreciation there in one of your upcoming books. And okay. I hope with you, there are always upcoming books. Oh boy. Okay. I, when it comes to tricksters, when it comes to my pre-adolescent mind and keeping yeah, yeah. in mind that pushing the envelope wasn't even in the vernacular at the time. But by God, if you want a guy who knows how to push the envelope, you get yourself a soupy sales. Oh, yeah. I, you know, I knew I knew you were going to say him. soupy sales. I mean, now there was a trickster. And if he wasn't the one engineering the tricks, he had a crew that was more than willing to do it on his behalf. He, he was kind of subversive, wasn't he? Um as long as you're on eBay, Gary, why don't you why don't you order me some DVDs of Soupy Sales? Because I'm going to have to do some real study. I'm going to have to actually go back and watch a bunch of that. And I would I would I would relish including him in a future book. That, that would, would be, be wonderful. I I could I could always marvel at a guy who could make comedy out of having a conversation 
with this costume clog, like right, 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 the clog. And Soupy, Soupy Sales is turning that into comedy, and you never knew what was going to happen. You never knew if maybe Frank Sinatra was going to show up on set, or or a stripper, because the crew thought it would be funny to to throw him off by bringing in this topless woman. All of these sorts of things. This is taking the medium and turning it upside down to see what it looks like in that funny position. I, I think he is personally responsible for inventing the bleep because yes, he, he was so inappropriate, and he wouldn't he wouldn't stand on propriety either because there after his famous show was taken off the air, he came back, he made his comeback, and I could remember watching of all things the Don Ho show oh, yeah. in the winter of nineteen seventy six, and. They uh, Don Ho brought Soupy Sales on the phone to promote his show. Well, it was a weekly show, and Soupy Sales will stand on no formality. So mm-hmm. when Don Ho uh, just teased his show, trying to help out his buddy there, he said, "I love you, Soupy. I watch you every day." And Soupy Sales, with the audience all listening, he goes, "Well, I'm only on once a week, but thanks." <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah. no formality. No one is spared, and he just had fun doing it. I. I saw a lot of crazy stuff with Soupy Sales, but I never detected malice. Right. And this, yeah, this was, yeah, right, right. And this was even before uh, VCRs. So how the guy watched it every day, um, we'll have to just uh, use our imaginations. Yeah, you know, you and you were talking about the, Susanna, you, you reminded me of something else where you're talking about the fool and I went on to King Lear, but you were reminding me of another one at the time too. Um, and now I, I can't remember uh, who that was, but um, yeah, yeah, it, you, you, see, you see time travel as an aspect of it. Now, one thing, it's not the one I was thinking of, but the other way for people to get into time travel is to watch a movie that, um, you know, you know, tricksters, they just stumble around they and and they just happen into things and the disadvantages well they're stumbling but the advantage is that their consciousness is kind of open to something coming in so when you look at the guys who put together the bugs bunny cartoons they weren't reading anthropological studies and necessarily looking at mythology i mean they might have been but there was just this consciousness in the writers room where they all had a sense of well what works as bugs bunny and what doesn't and this collective group of whether it was the Carl Stalling during the music or the, the they had three different directors or Mel Blanc doing the voices and they had all these writers, they kind of had this um, gut level sense of what really was Bugs and it really was the trickster. Well, another example, and I was as surprised as anyone else when I watched the original Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, while doing my research. And that movie uh, checks a lot of the boxes. I mean, it's got the time travel in it. It's got all the 10 attributes of the trickster. Um, So what folks do is when they read the book, and I write about Bill and Ted, but also get a handle on those 10 attributes, and then go watch Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, and you'll be surprised on how they they just wanted to make a funny 80s movie, but you will be surprised how they stumble 
into all the trickster attributes. Whoever thought that utopia would be based on a planet that worshipped an absolutely miserable heavy metal band called Wild Stallions, right? Which is which is what George Carlin's mission was to protect Bill and Ted so that their absolutely terrible band would uh, would survive and and, 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 and and create utopia. Hilarious. You mentioned um, Mel Blanc and um, all the voices that he did for Warner Brothers. Mm. And um, I had sent you an email last week that we were having an impressionist on our show. Oh, yeah. We got into the conversation about Rich Little and John Biner and Robin Williams and people who do voices seem to be in their own little category of tricksterism because it's not really that person, but boy, it sure sounds like that person. When you have somebody who's doing an impression, they can also make fun of the person that they're doing an impression of. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, uh, Baldwin on uh, Saturday night live or, um, or, you know, some of the people who do the, the impressions of our political figures right. that, um, you know, allow us to laugh at and also take a, a look at that. But we're all kind of taken aback when we hear a voice that doesn't go with that face. That's not the guy who does that. What, you know, why, how can Rich Little be doing that or Robin Williams be doing that? That's not Robin Williams. Now he's doing Aladdin, you know, now he's doing right. something else right? So, or, or Aladdin's genie. Right. So um, wh- where do you, where do impressionists fit in? Have you, have you, uh, well, you know, when, for when, them, um, you know, I haven't really delved into impressionism, impressionism is an art movement, but impre- what impressionists do per se. However, um, there is that rather, hefty chapter in the beginning of the book on Lord Buckley. Yes. And if you ever got a hold of any Lord Buckley records, I mean, he's, I like calling him the most famous person to have never become famous because he was everywhere. And he had that trickster. I mean, he checked a lot of the boxes and he had that trickster attribute of, of, um, kind of self-destructive and self-humiliation. And he, every time he had a chance to get famous, he would, he would kind of sabotage his own opportunities. And I wouldn't call it deliberate, but I would call it built into his personality type. But I, I digress. If you listen to his records, and he was the first person to ever put out comedy records. So when his records came out, the guys in the record store didn't know where to shelve it because there was no such thing as a comedy record. But he would adopt a whole bunch of different voices, and he was really good at it. And here's a value to to being able to adopt other voices, Suzanne, is that um, he he was a white man, but he introduced black vernacular to American audiences because he used it. Now, the other guy, and I neglected to write about him much, but I really wish I had, is Jonathan Winters. Jonathan Winters not only would adopt all kinds of voices in his routines, but talk about a guy who was in touch with his own version of being a small child. You know, he would Mm -hmm. play a little baby in a playpen. He would go goo goo gaga, and it was very... 
um, scarily real. I mean, he really could. Now, I mentioned both of these guys because without Lord Buckley and without Jonathan Winters, there's no Robin Williams. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, exactly so. Jonathan Winters ended up being Robin Williams' son on Mork and Mindy. Right. <laughs> and, right. and Robin Williams acknowledged the yeah. inspiration he got from Jonathan Winters. He was interviewing him one time there, and Jonathan Winters is just spinning out this stuff impromptu. And Robin Williams, there, who is this comedic genius, there is cracking up. This is the man who inspired him, getting him to laugh uproariously. And here, and here's the thing about that, Robin Williams. Uh, everybody, most people know about that connection that Robin Williams acknowledged Jonathan Winters. Robin Williams also acknowledged Lord Buckley. And if you listen to Lord Buckley records, you go, oh, oh, that that's Robin Williams stole that. And he stole that. Yet, once again, nobody knows that because R Lord Buckley, even in since he died, uh, still still remains a cult figure. But I, I, I wrote about him at length in the book, and I hope people will get familiar with Lord Buckley because because he crossed the line from just being a comedian he crossed the line into politics as well because he just did a lot of crazy stuff out in the world not just on stage and that's where things become political right that's where it becomes more than a movie or a tv show you mentioned that lord buckley was using the uh, black vernacular and it reminded me that Amos and Andy on the radio were white and it wasn't until they went to television that they had to find two black actors That's because a... they, they were two white guys on the radio who were using black voices. That's a really good point and that's, <laughs> the, that's kind of kismet there because uh, Lord Buckley was on Ed, Ed Sullivan really loved him. And even with Ed Sullivan's love, he couldn't get famous. But he appeared on the Ed Sullivan show nine times or eleven yeah. times, yeah, and he that's... did an Amos and Andy routine because that's what Ed wanted him to do. Even though he recognized kind of that it was starting to look a little racist, and, yeah. and Buckley wanted to move away from that, but Ed Sullivan always insisted that he did his he would do his Amos and Andy routine. Interestingly enough. I saw this on VHS, so we're talking back in the day. But I was surprised that when Amos and Andy became a network television sitcom, there was somebody captured it on film. They wanted to capture the moment, I suppose. The studio audience was introduced to the cast members who would be playing Amos and Andy and the other major parts. And as they were introduced and came before the audience, there was this laughter born of surprise, like, oh, yes, that would be Amos, that would be Andy, that would be Kingfish right there. They left because, oh, yeah, these black men are going to be providing us with this comedy with black vernacular and the accents right. and the uh, Argo of the street coming out. And I thought that is so racially based and it's based entirely on societal expectation. Very well said. Yeah. Uh, and before people saw Lord Buckley in person, a lot of people thought he was black. Yeah. Wow. Now that is fascinating. I, I know we have a few minutes left to get into one more question or so, 
Good. But there is so much that we didn't cover, Shep. Please come back and talk about women tricksters and, yes. and racism and anti-Semitism and all the other stuff that tricksters have gotten involved with and, and helped us make progress with. We'll, we'll, can we do a part two? Please, please do. Please do have me back. Right. And, and I will say this. So I was, look, that first book, the two books are really good companions to each other. Yes. I still want to recommend Disruptive Play to people. And I grew up in in the 50s and the 60s. And, and, and especially once I hit high school in the late 60s, we, these were the, the characters I got introduced to who I really looked up to and learned from. Marcel Duchamp, Alfred Jarry, Abby Hoffman, later on, Andy Kaufman. Okay, they're all white men. Um, I don't apologize for that. It's what the waters we were swimming in. And I, um, that's who I got exposed to. But when I toured behind that book, I frequently got from the audience, where are the women? Where are the people of color? And I hadn't planned on writing another book, but at they, those audience members are the ones who inspired and prompted me to get back to the drawing board and do more research and seek out the female tricksters and the people of color. So I love being with people live. And if you don't mind, I'm going to mention it is July 14th. Mm -hmm. I'll be at third place books in Ravenna in the evening. And all you Seattle folks know that wonderful independent bookstore. They've got three locations, I think. Third place books. This will be the Ravenna location. Excellent. Come, cri come criticize me, because otherwise I'm not going to write another book. I'm going to join a rock and roll <laughs> band and just go have fun. Suzanne and I would aspire to be the ones who can introduce you. We would love, That would be a privilege. That is just great. And your book, once again... It is called Tricking Power into Performing Acts of Love, How Tricksters Through History Have Changed the World. We did not even get to Yoko Ono. I know. I said that's why we're going to have part two. We're we going to get to all the females and all the other tricksters that we didn't cover today. Sasha Baron Cohen. I mean, oh, yeah. One of my favorites. Richard Pryor. Richard. Oh, we are going to have such fun next time. Uh, we're just setting it up for part two. We'll, we'll look on the calendar and we'll see when you can come back and we'll do this again. Our people will call your people. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much. It, and I know we're just voices on the radio, but we're looking at each other and it's really fun to see you. Yeah, oh, likewise. yeah, likewise. Sure. We love so our Zoom now that we can <laughs> can see our folks, even though we're not recording that part of it. You know, it is nice to be able to see our guests for the first time. We're, we're on air 15 years now. We're just now seeing some of our guests. And if you had any idea, Shep, how much internal dialogue went on at the station about even being able to use Skype. And now people <laughs> laugh. You say Skype. This is Zoom's world now. And yeah. here we are. And here we will be again. Thank you, Shepard Siegel. Always a pleasure, sir. Likewise. See you All soon. Right. Okay. More stuff coming up on AM 1150. At one o'clock Pacific time, we have Trip Talk with host Gary Mance. And my guest is going to be Matt Shea, who is a great chronicler of the PNW. And he's going to take us this time up to Forks, Washington and Olympic National Park. All right. And thank you for joining us today. Have a wonderful Memorial Day weekend, everyone.